Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Before we get to our normal podcast recording, I want to make sure that I read a statement in support of what is happening in the recent events by my fellow women of color podcasters. Here at the Wine and Cheese My Podcast, we are united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the many, many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systematic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black Lives Matter. We believe that Black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are to witness it. In creating digital media, we have built audiences that return week after week to hear our voices. And we will use our voices to speak against anti-Blackness and police brutality, and we encourage our audience to be educated, engaged, and to take action. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanez. The last couple of weeks, so many of us have witnessed a shift that has taken hold all around the world. Black lives matter no matter where you are from or where you call home. This week, I speak with my friend Stephen Jackson. As Texas native, Stephen is a graduate of the University of Oklahoma and currently works in education as a director of operations for a national charter school network. Stephen and I have known each other for almost nine years and met while working at a nonprofit for youth development in Dallas, Texas. We have since gone to literally opposite ends of the country, but have maintained touch through social media. But as we started discussing recent events with, it, with one another, we knew we had an opportunity, an opportunity for Stephen to share his story. His story may be shared by many or by few, but it's his and I'm honored to share it with you. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Mr. Steven Jackson, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's so great to see you. It's been such a long time. I know. It's been, it's so good to see your face like outside of social media, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think we're doing the best we can given the restrictions in the world right now. I know. I know. Well, this is the Wine and Cheese podcast. And before we get to our cheese for the day, I'm drinking the McBride Sisters Collection Red Blend. It's a Central Coast California wine. And it's 2016 
vintage and uh, they are a black owned brand wine company. So I think it's just, I knew I was going to need wine for this conversation because Lord knows what, like people have been getting on my <laughs> Is it a red wine or is it a white wine? It is a red wine. Are you a wine drinker, Stephen? I am. I am. What kind of wine do you drink? I don't discriminate. I do like the whites, I think, more so sometimes because they have, like, the sweeter flavor in most cases to me. But I'll drink anything if it has a good good taste and a good story. Okay, well, I'll start sending you some some recommendations, and then you have to let me know what you think of them. Sounds good. <laughs> but let's get into the chisme. You and I have known each other for, oh, my gosh, like years and years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We met when we were both working with, uh, while well, I was working on like the umbrella group of Promising Youth Alliance and you were working with Boys and Girls Club of Greater Dallas. And the what we were working on was kind of this first of its kind collaboration thing of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Club, and Phoenix House. So you were literally like in with the kids I mean, our office was there. I got to see the kids every day. And in fact, this whole thing has just, you know, I think of these kids a lot and I, I don't, I'm going to ask if you keep in touch with any of them. And I think you have, yeah, I, I wish we did, but social media, there were little kids when we were there. So mm-hmm. it's not like they had social media and everything. And I was uh, joking or not joking. I was telling the story of how the kids would want to come say hi to me and how I would tell them. I stopped asking how their day was and I'm like, well, you need to tell me one thing that you learned today. Like that's your past to talk to me. Mm-hmm. And then finally they get to the point where they'd be like, hi, Miss Jessica, today at school I learned. <laughs> <laughs> they already knew the routine. <laughs> so it was just, but we've kept in touch over the years, just on social media, like, hey, how's it going? Happy birthdays, those types of things. So I'm really I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to see your face because you're ha- your face makes me happy because you just always have this like wonderful energy about you. But I'm just sad that it has to be in this way. Right, definitely. I think um, it's great to see you too, Jessica. I'm so excited for you and this podcast. And I always knew even back then when we worked together how like passionate and great you were just with both technology and social media and just being a voice for things that you're passionate about. So like kudos to you for like launching this and sticking with it and being so passionate about good wine. (laughs) (laughs) That just tops it off, right? I mean, well, it really was. It was the whole thing of, I always saw the same, I kind of kept saying that seeing the same stories from communities of color. It was like the same stories recycled over and over and over again. And I was like, there's so many more stories out there. There are so many people out there doing really great things. I have had the pleasure of working with so many people such as yourself who are continuing to do things like this. And that's really what this whole podcast was set up to be is to amplify those voices and share those stories. So that's, that's what it's here for. But you are, you know, you've since moved on from that. You are the director of operations for a large charter school network. Mm-hmm. You are a educated black man who is giving back, like who continues to work in education. Mm-hmm. And I know that you were never somebody who like 
on social media was always about like saying stuff. I know you obviously would talk, I know you would talk about things, but you were never like, let me blast everything on social media. Everything that's happened recently, you're, you were literally like, I can't, I can't not say something on social media anymore. Right. What was, and there's like so many questions I have for you. And like I said, if you have questions for me, please feel free because I feel I want this to just truly be an open dialogue. Okay. Growing up, how was race addressed in your household? Like in your household versus like when you walked out? Right. So I think, you know, thinking back to like growing up and how things were for myself and even my siblings, you know, it was always conversations about like what the world would be like outside of the walls of our home. I definitely know now like my parents and I have both my parents, both of my parents are married still. I understand now that that is not a norm, uh, especially with my community. But like I did live a very good life. And my parents were very intentional about telling me things and telling my brothers things about like, this might not necessarily be like what the world is when you step outside of this home. And even with hearing things like that, Jessica, I don't want to sit here and claim to be a victim and say I experienced an overwhelming amount of issues relating to my race. However, I do feel like when things did appear in my life, they're very traumatic and they're very devastating for me in relation to like what my parents would have told me they would have felt like. And that just seems even more so amplified now with the situations that are occurring and what's being brought to light um, with regard to police brutality and police shootings. And it just overwhelmingly just, it makes you feel so sad. I think that's the proper word that I want to use. And it just has unfortunately been something that I've been absorbed in I mean, for the last probably week and a half, going on two weeks now, Jessica, with everything that just has been in the media, it's just, it's very difficult. But just to bring it back to your original question, I mean, it's, my parents definitely would explain to us that, you know, what happens inside our walls and the confines of our home, you know, the world might not always look like that. And so this is what you need to be prepared for in this type of situation. Or as situations came up, Jessica, we would talk about them and like, what things we should think of or how we should still address people even if they don't address us in a proper way. And I think that's kind of how things evolved in my family in terms of like us dealing with life experiences and how we could deal with them if they did show their heads to us in life in general. Did they share their experiences with racism growing up? Yeah, my parents did. Uh, not only did my parents did, but when my grandparents were alive. Um, I did get some of that as well. It was a little bit harder to like understand at the age I was when my grandparents were alive though, but like I feel like now like those lessons resonate so much more strongly now um, in thinking back to things that they talked about um, with what they had to deal with. And I feel like specifically with my parents though, it was stuff that they were dealing with as you know young adults and adults this period that they would also bring up in conversation with us as well, whether it was my father's places of employment that he had worked at over the years, or my mom's places of employment, she would talk about specific situations that she would deal with. And it just became a thing that, you know, as they also encountered things, they would explain to us like what they dealt with, how they dealt with it, and talk to us about like why they made those choices and how they still hoped 
for a world where they wouldn't have to worry about that for us. I, please forgive me for forgetting because it's been a while since we talked. You're, you're, are you from, you're from Houston, right? Is it the Houston area? Is that where you grew up? I was, I was originally born in Houston, but I was raised in Port Arthur. Okay. Ooh, mm-hmm. so I was still, I can't mm-hmm. believe I remember that. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you was there. <laughs> As there, see, that means you mean something to me, Steven. Um, so specifically when it came to, inter- and like when you started growing up, at, wh- at what point did your parents start talking to you or did they start talking about interactions with police? And how did they approach that? What are the things that they would say to you and your siblings in regards to that? So I can remember specifically for myself, like, the first time that I actually had to have that conversation or that my parents had that conversation with me about the police specifically was when I was going to get my license. That was the first time when my parents had to sit me down and have the conversation about possible interactions I would have with police. You know, the fact that like I would have to keep in mind the type of car I had, which I had this like red sporty Nissan at the time, Jessica. So like my dad definitely called out that, you know, there's, the, the possibility that you might get stopped more because of the color of your car and the type of car it is also. So it just was this, this whole conversation, which is funny to me, now that we've been talking about it, that you would have to have that type of conversation. But that was the first time that me and my parents had to sit down and talk about, look, son, this is probably what you're going to have to worry about because of the type of car that you're, you're choosing or that you want. I mean, they never discouraged the car that I wanted. They definitely, you know, supported me they gave me the feedback about it but they also had to have the talk with me about it as well so thinking back to how that relates to what I feel now it's just it's crazy and that was what I'm 37 now and that had to be almost 20 27 years ago if not more when they had that conversation and fast forward today I mean it's still a conversation that my father even in the recent years had to have with me just about interactions with police in that time when you had that car, did you notice any sort of difference or did you ever have that any sort of experience that would you would start considering traumatic at that point? Yeah, I, I did actually. I actually, that was the car I took with me to college. I didn't take it my first year because my, my parents didn't want me to have a car for my first year of college. They felt kind of agree with the decision. They felt like it was more important for me to have a focus, be on campus, really connect with people and my surroundings versus having a car. But the second semester when I had my car um, at school, I, I did notice and I did have a pretty traumatic experience at the time. It was a time when I was, I had moved off campus and it was probably like maybe a 10, 30, 11 o'clock evening. Jessica, when I you know, I'm a, I'm a late night snacker type of person. And the, the place that I was staying at at the time, they had a 7-Eleven maybe less than a mile away down the street from where I had lived. And so I wanted to go to the store to get a snack. I mean, that was something that I routinely did. And I was pulled over. And this is 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, Jessica. And 7-Elevens, at least in that area, they were 24 hours. They stayed open really late. I got pulled over. I hadn't been speeding, hadn't been drinking, didn't run any stop signs, any lights or whatever. I got pulled over by the police and it was two police officers that got out of the vehicle to, you know, question me and ask me things about like what I was doing in that area while I was out at this this hour and 
I responded to the questions, not thinking anything was wrong. And then when I asked them, you know, what am I being pulled over for? One of the officers responded and said, oh, this is just a routine stop. You know, you, you fit the description of somebody we might be looking for and we just wanted to check things out. And I, I really, that, that, that response didn't sit well with me at all. And I didn't push it at that time because I didn't feel like that was the best thing for me to do. Um, but ever since then, like I, I felt in thinking about that situation, like really nasty about just that response. And like now, if I could go back, I probably would have asked more questions. Like, what do you mean? What is a routine stop? Like, why am I being detained? I haven't done anything wrong. You know, so what is the reason for my stop? And it's just, I don't think there was a real reason, Jessica. And I don't think that there was anybody that I fit the description for. Yeah. Um, and once they ran my insurance and my plates, they said I could go. So it just makes you wonder, why was I stopped? I mean, absolutely. I know, you know, I grew up, I'm the oldest of three girls. So first of all, we didn't have, like, being girls, I don't think my parents thought that way, but being Latina and we're being light-skinned Latinas, we did never have that conversation, right? We didn't ever have that conversation in regards to, it's like, if you get stopped, you need to make sure you have your blah, 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 have it ready. But you can't even say that now, right? You don't want to touch anything. anything. It, like, from, and tell me if I'm wrong, like, the my understanding is, is Anytime, if you're a black person, you are taught, keep your hands on the wheel at all times. Do not move it. Literally, you have to say, okay, my registration is in the glove compartment. I'm reaching for, like, literally, you have to narrate exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And even when somebody in the case of Philando Castile, who did that, right, I have, he's saying he has a permit for a concealed weapon, and he was getting his weapon to show that he has it with him and everything. I mean, that still doesn't even regardless of who you are but especially with i think black men there comes a point where i think you realize oh wait i am a black man like oh wait i am seen different what do you feel like that point was for you where you were just like people see me differently which really pisses me off and if i like because i already feel my body getting hot because the fact that people like would see you you know anybody different just because that just really upsets me but what was your like like your first moment of that? Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think the first moment of that for me was, and like I said, I don't go around trying to act like I'm a victim or act like I want some type of special privileges or anything like that. But, you know, I think one of the first moments I experienced with just feeling kind of like the weight of being black is just a situation that I'm sure is familiar to other people that have experienced it, but like, being followed around the store that you're shopping in and then noticing that like a person is following you and it's very obvious and everybody else that's shopping in the store is completely fine like, i mean nobody's looking at them nobody's asking them questions but the person that's following you has checked on you multiple times and is hovering in areas where you're looking at items and it just became very apparent that I was being targeted in the sense of like, we need to make sure we keep our eyes on this person because he might do something funny. And it just also is funny and knowing that, you know, I have enough money to buy multiple items in this store and wouldn't even need to, you know, take anything if I didn't want to. And it just becomes very frustrating. But that moment made me think there's something different about me. And I was, 
you know, he's still young at the time, but still old enough to know that that didn't feel right. Like everybody else in the store is there just like I am for the same reason, you know, and you don't know per se, you know, if they have the propensity to do something, but I'm the one that's being followed. What, so, how old were you when, and when that happened? I was 25. Um, this was a mall that I went to that was in Oklahoma. I don't want to say the city, but it was in Oklahoma. And it was, I won't say it was a high-end store, Jessica. I mean, it was a store that anybody would go into, you know, that probably is in that age range. But it just was a very icky feeling for me, similar to the feeling that I had when the cops pulled me over for, you know, why is this happening? And at that particular time, like I had been doing some, you know, work in school with particular class, uh, coursework that kind of made me more aware of things like that and just made me kind of think differently about how situations like that affected me in my life. So maybe that's why it stuck out to me like that. But that was the moment when I first started feeling like, you know, I'm looked at differently. And the crazy thing is, is I know every, like everybody's story is different, right? Everybody's story when they feel that, that, weight come on them of who how people are seeing them is different at every, in every in every person's life how growing up in Port Arthur was it a really like I know one other person from there but he's a white guy <laughs> what was the community like in Port Arthur I'm not really I mean I lived in Dallas for 15 years I know Dallas is you know, a really diverse community. I had a lot of different friends, but I also grew up in San Diego where less than 7% of the, the population is black here. So I've had that, that thing in Dallas where I'm surrounded by it, but I've also had growing up in San Diego, it was sparse. How is it in Port Arthur? Well, I mean, Port Arthur's population is about 60,000 people. It probably was around that same amount when I was growing up. And for the most part, my whole educational experience before I graduated high school has been predominantly around people that looked exactly like me, from teachers to even the students. Um, the high school that I matriculated from was predominantly African-American. So it wasn't until I went to college that I even experienced, you know, being truly a minority because I went to a predominantly white institution. So, you know, growing up before then, like I, had the experience of being around my peers and people that looked like me a lot. Um, so I never, I feel like I never really had to think about being black because that essentially was like what I was associated with consistently all the time. Went to a predominantly black church, you know, went to a predominantly black school, you know, all the events that I went to and family outings, you know, majority, if not all of my family members were, were black. So it was just something that I, I guess I never really had to think about. And even the neighborhood that we grew up in, you know, a lot of the, the, the interactions that I had growing up with friends and people like that, you know, were, were of African-American descent. So it wasn't until I got to college where I even probably had to start thinking about those conversations. But even beyond that, like I did mention before, like once I had my car and I got that, my license, my parents didn't have to talk to me about that. But it wasn't until later until I really started to feel the weight of things of me being different. So you, speaking of, you went to the University of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Boomer <laughs> Boomer Sooner, yes, I know a lot of Boomer Sooners. <laughs> so you're, so you're, yeah, you're an OU alum. And when you got there, you were saying, I know it's, you know, very, very different from where you grew up. How did you 
did you decide when you, I know you're, you're part of fraternity, right? Did you decide, yeah. So did you make a conscious decision that you were going to be part of a black fraternity? Did you decide that that's, like how was your, when you plugged in to the school and the things around the school, did you, were, did you make a conscious decision to stay within that community or was it kind of all over the place? Um, so I felt like when I first got to the university, I think at that time, I mean, I felt like the school did a very good job of having like a plethora of different organizations for, you know, youth like me to be able to, to pick from, you know, gave us ample opportunity to see them, find out what they're about, you know, be exposed to them. So I won't say that I, I made like, or I had a conscious mind made up to make a decision to plug in in that way. I feel like I came into the, the, the scene with an open mind about like what I would want to be plugged into. Um, so I wasn't like per se biased in the sense that like I knew going in and I wanted to be in a fraternity or I wanted to do this. Like I was really open. I didn't have any, any immediate family members that were in fraternities or sororities. So like I didn't even know anything about that um, going into college. Like so everything was like legitimately like brand new for me. So I just kind of allowed myself to experience things for the first time and then like make a decision about whether I liked it or not and then chose to engage in that in that way before then. What do you think people think of when they think of a black fraternity and what do you think is different? Like, do you, do you find that there's people have a typical quote unquote, you know, yeah. idea of what something is versus what the act what the reality is? I think I would equate it to like people thinking about fraternities like they think about athletes, right? So like some people feel like when you see an athlete, oh, you know, there's a jock, they probably don't get good grades, they probably don't care about school, all they want to do is talk about sports and stuff like that. And I think, you know, there might be some similar mentalities out there about people who join fraternities, oh, you know, they're paying for friends, oh, they like to do stuff and be seen, you know, they just want to look cool and they don't really care about substance, you know, and I just think regardless of what organization you choose to be affiliated with, you know, it always boils down to the individuals. I mean, they're the individuals that comprise an organization. So an organization by itself is, is nothing without the people. So I would just, you know, wish people would allow themselves to get to know the individuals versus making generalizations about like, who you think somebody is based on who they affiliate with. So my first, and I had actually posted about this uh, recently, my first experience seeing what racism really was, was um, Rodney King. And seeing that, and I was 12 years old when that happened. I was in eighth grade. If I start crying, it's because it's just, it, it just is, it's mind boggling to me. I remember seeing that and not understanding, like my 12 year old little brain could not understand like these men kicking this man like he was a piñata, right? And that's literally what I thought, like they're trying to break him open, like he's a piñata. And I just didn't understand it. So that was kind of my first experience and seeing that from the outside and obviously like that still affects me like that's something that I feel like affected me for the first time in that way 
And then when the riots broke out after, because everybody's sure, like, I'm, but again, I'm a little light-skinned Latina who can, you know, like, whatever. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> of course, of course, they have it on tape. Of course, like, it, they're going to be put away. And then they don't. And then the LA riots happen. And then you hear people saying certain things in regards to the response, right? The resp- the post, I'm, you're younger than me. So you're probably like seven or eight when that happened. Was, were your, did your parents kind of let you know what was going on at that time where things like that were discussed um, when it was really on a big national scale? So to be honest, I feel like my parents tried to do their best to shield me and my brothers from things like that. So I don't feel like my parents tried to like ingrain in me like specific things about like other races or feeling certain ways about people. So with this specific instance in the Rodney King situation, like I don't feel like my parents had the opportunity to really sit us down and talk us through what was happening and just give us a dialogue about that. Um, because I feel like they did try to shield me and my brothers from like really ugly truths that were happening in the world. And so maybe that's another reason why like a lot of the things that are happening now for me as an adult resonate so strongly because I didn't have like a lot of that ugly rawness that took place a lot of the years when I was growing up. But no, like my parents didn't have an opportunity to really talk to me about that, Jessica. And I wasn't old enough, I think, to have like the same lens that you might have had about a situation like that. But knowing what took place with that situation and just thinking in tandem with the things that are going on now, like you can't help but see similarities, unfortunately, and wonder at what point will we stop doing the same things? And in what point will like our history not continue to be one that where it repeats itself because you would think with as much advances as we made as a country, as a society, and as a people, that something as simplistic as choosing people, choosing to allow people to be who they are, regardless of their race, wouldn't even be an issue, you know, anymore. But I just feel like we continue to reside in a society just where we have people that think because you're a black man or because you're a Latina woman, that there's something about you based on what I've heard or saw on TV or in a movie, a fictitious movie, that you're this way. And I think that's so sad and unfortunate, but so parts of me feels like my parents were right to shield me from things like that growing up. But also I feel like maybe parts of me feels like that was a detriment to me because now as a, a grown man, like it's hitting me like a rock. And now I have to deal with it Um, without my parents' help because I'm on my own now and I have to work through things. I mean, I still have my parents, of course, I can call them, but I don't have them in the same capacity like I did when I was younger. Were these things like that you would hear whisperings about in school and everything? Because I'm sure not all parents shielded their kids, right? Maybe there's, I'm sure there were some parents that wanted to take that opportunity to talk to their kids and whatnot, but were there ever kind of, even outside of like that, when that happened, beyond that, for other in, for maybe other things that have happened, that you would you started hearing other experiences at school that started making you wonder. I mean, I think if if there were just because they were very limited, I think that um, you know my parents did a very good job of like controlling who I was around when I wasn't at school, 
to make sure that maybe I didn't run into stuff like that. No, I won't say that I've never experienced things like that in school or heard things like that in school, but about that specific instance, um, I can't really say that I did. Um, I feel like I did experience specific instances about like being racist or having racist comments be made in school and like those things I felt like probably were addressed by teachers and not really escalated beyond that. Um, but with the Rodney King situation, I don't specifically recall anything or hearing anything about that through the channels that I was affiliated with or my friends at school at that particular time because I probably was just too young. Yeah, I mean, if I'm a 12-year-old and I don't know what the hell is going on, I can't even imagine, you know, somebody even younger. You graduate from OU. Did you go straight to Dallas from Oklahoma? I mean, pretty much. Right after I graduated, I did go back home for about two months, two and a half months maybe, to uh, just kind of take a break (laughs) before I started in the workplace. Uh, But after that, yeah, I moved to Dallas in July of 2008 and worked for a logistics company for about a year and a half to two years and just didn't really feel fulfilled, but took a subsequent job in another logistics company and worked there for about two to two and a half years. And then just still didn't feel fulfilled. So I really asked myself at that time, like, what is it I want to see for myself? Where do I feel like I can fit? And that made me, you know, take a part-time job at the Boys and Girls Club. And so I took that part-time job working in the afternoon slash late evenings or early late evenings. And then I guess I was good at what I did because they promoted me up. I got additional opportunities and then fast forward a bit. That's when we met. <laughs> and the, your life has always been better. My life has been better since. <laughs> so let me ask you, like when you moved up from logistics or actually when you first moved to Dallas, what was your experience in regards to just socially, you know, do you, do you feel like you had that same experience in Dallas as you did in Oklahoma? Did you feel like it was more embracing, less embraced? Like, how did you feel when you moved to Dallas? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, first, let me say, coming from a small town and, you know, a college town, like going to a big city like Dallas was like extremely overwhelming for me. I remember the first day I drove there, like I felt like nauseated a little bit because just it was so much for me to take in at one time. I felt like I was going to get lost. I didn't know any of the highways. It just was a a cluster. (laughs) But I mean, thinking about just my experience as a whole when I initially got there, like I felt really good about it. Like I felt like Dallas felt like a big city. It felt like there were different pockets of people all over the place and people were very accepting of like whoever you were. Um, And of course, I know now that's not specifically the case in all of Dallas. But when I first got there, the lens I had was like, it was a great place to be in. I loved it. You know, it was a big city. You could go places. You could do a a lot of things. And it just felt like a good, good start for me. It did. What were the things that you wanted to plug in or how did you plug in in Dallas outside of work? Definitely. So I'm, I'm definitely an outdoorsy type person. So like I wanted to plug into you know, different groups that like enjoyed like running, hiking, doing outdoors type stuff, whether that be like softball, kickball, those types of things. In some areas, I did plug into some of that. Um, I definitely felt the need to plug in like spiritually. So like I needed like a church home at the time to plug into. Um, I did plug in pretty early, like into like the fraternity aspect of that area. So I'd also wanted to get that whole thing plugged in as well. 
And then just with the social front, like meeting some of the people or reconnecting with some of the people from my college or from my hometown or people that oh, I Yeah, there's a big OU community there for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> so being connected in that way socially, which would, you know, turn into fun things for like the nightlife, we're going out to eat, having drinks and stuff like that, which wasn't hard at all, Jessica, to be honest. Like there was I mean, a there's lot. what Dallas, I mean, if you know Dallas, that's what Dallas is known for. Dallas has more restaurants per capita than New York City. Like and we love it. <laughs> So when you decided to plug into a church, what kind of church did you plug into? So actually, you know, contrary to how I was raised, I was raised predominantly Baptist, but occasionally, you know, my mom, who was brought up Catholic, she did take us to Catholic service sometimes. So I had like this quasi experience, but I ended up going to what probably resembles like a Pentecostal type of church which, you know, contrary to what I've experienced growing up and contrary to like what I thought was natural, didn't seem very natural to me at first upon going to it. But later after subsequent visits and me going continuously and regularly, like I did become like pretty accustomed to it, uh, felt very filled and like felt like I actually was gaining a lot of insight and knowledge that I hadn't um, in a lot of ways before. So it definitely kept me in ways that I felt like I hadn't been kept before, so I continued to do it. Was it a pretty diverse church, or is it a, a predominantly Black church? Sorry, and predominantly Black church as well. Oh, I've gone, and Black church takes forever. <laughs> when, I first, when I first moved to Dallas, one of the girls I work with, Stephanie, was like, Jessica, come to church with me. I'm like, all right, cool. First of all, that was my first experience hearing Finna, right? I'm from <laughs> California, so already people saying they're fixing to do stuff i'm like what the hell are you fixing you're not fixing anything you're going somewhere in the back we're going to church and stuff he's like yeah we finna do this blah blah and i literally i think my eyes were like as big as you probably see in biggest saucers and i'm like we're what we finna go here and i was like Stephanie, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> what does that mean? Nobody knows what finna means. Yeah, huh? that, that is like, no. Yeah, and then she's like, oh, it's abbreviated for fix it. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Seriously? Oh my gosh. You can't even, ju- I'm like, I'm just learning what fixing is. Now I got to learn the whole other vernacular. <laughs> it's finna? I finna go here? Oh my gosh. But yeah, we went to, I went to church with her. I swear we were there for like two and a half hours. All right, some of that, that's just some of that <laughs> vernacular, Jessica. <laughs> you, get, you get used to it after a while. You do. Wait, let me just say this. I refuse to say y'all the entire time I lived in Texas. <laughs> I, like, refused. I made it a point. I always say guys or you guys. But now that I'm back in California, I'll sometimes say y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let a little bit of the Texas sneak back in. <laughs> do people call you out for it? No, because a lot of people say it, right? It's not even, it's not just, I think it's one of those words that is kind of latched on to beyond outside the South that people say anyways. And people of color, a lot of people of color say that anyway. So it's become things that I've been accustomed to for living in Dallas for so long. (laughs) 
You're going to be a Southern girl at heart before it's all said and done, Jessica. What if, oh my gosh, I, you know what, you know how much I always claim my California roots. <laughs> <laughs> but Dallas, Texas is, is still a very big part of me, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and we both, you know, have since left. We're both literally on opposite coasts. Besides. Yeah. Um, when you decided to go over to Boys and Girls Club, what was initially the thing that drew you to and then made you want to kind of continue to grow in that role for, you were there for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So this actually, this decision is one that like I had to make like twice in my life, Jessica. There was one time when I was doing some mentorship work in Oklahoma when I was in undergrad, and I never worked with youth before that point, but I remember we were mentoring and helping these youth like with their homework and stuff like this, and I only did it a couple of times, but it's so funny that that experience and me doing that a couple of times was life-altering. But anyway, there was this one kid that I was working with, they were working on an essay, and they just wanted some help to like get started, like how do you start this essay that you need to write about and the essay was about Dr. Martin Luther King and it's just so funny like this well-known man throughout history that you know is stamped everywhere like you would think everybody knows about them even the most general basic things and so I was like oh this is perfect like I got this I, this will be easy I can definitely help this kid start this essay so I was helping the student like just brainstorm. That was the best way I thought to like help them. Like, let's just list out some stuff that we know about him. And then we can form, you know, our, our story or our essay based on that. And I was like, you know, let's go ahead and talk about some things that you know about him. So I asked the young person, you know, what's one thing that you know about him? And the first thing out of this student's mind is it's, it's comical to me, but it's also sad, was that, oh, you know, wasn't, wasn't he the president? And I just kind of stopped and I looked at him and I was like, you know, are you serious? And I saw on the face that they weren't laughing or anything like that. And I was like, you know, do you mean the president of like the NAACP or an organization like that? And even though that wasn't, still wasn't right, like I was trying to like clarify like what they meant. And, you know, the conversation went in a different direction after that, but I just, you know, that moment stuck with me, Jessica, because this was like a middle school student that I was working with and I just thought it was completely unacceptable for a student that age that was, you know, similar to me, my skin color, to not know who Martin Luther King was and to be able to like not name facts about him readily like that. And so that was a moment for me, that was like an aha moment. So if you fast forward to like me thinking about like committing to the Boys and Girls Club in the way that I did, like I referenced that moment and I thought to myself, I want to be able to impact the world in a way that involves youth. I want to make sure that youth can see positive influences, can know that there's great options for them in life, can know that there are people that are passionate about helping them and are genuine. And I just felt like it was important to me to be plugged into helping people, helping youth and trying to change people's lives and change our world through youth. And so when the opportunity came for me to, you know, take a full-time step with the Boys and Girls Club, I was like, this is a no-brainer for me. <laughs> <laughs> I get to do what I'm passionate about and you guys are going to pay me for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, definitely. I, I feel I always felt the same way, you know, when Robbie called me, you know, and Robbie's still a mentor of mine. 
I actually just watched Ryan graduate from high school online the other day. Oh, oh I was crying. I sent her a video and I'm crying in the video telling her how proud I am. Dang, it's been you know, so long. Brandon, her son, just graduated from USC. Um, he is a musician and you know, she has always been an advocate of mine. Me and Robbie have just always like vibed. And so when she called me, obviously I know people, you know, listening don't know who Robbie is. My, my mentor Robbie is, you know, a black woman who is, has always supported me. So my, I've had so much support myself from people coming from the black community, you know, who are like, what can I do? How can I help you? that I want to do that. Like I always tell people, if I believe in you, I don't want to be your cheerleader. I want to be your advocate because that's what I've had. So when Robbie called me, she's like, I need a partner in crime. I'm over here at this new nonprofit. I need a partner in crime. And I was like, all right. So I had to interview with Pam. And then, you know, I started and, you know, when we started, you know, we didn't even have a building. Right. When we started, we just, still had just an idea and, you know, we were located in the middle of a Dallas housing authority structure, right? Whereas all these kids, I mean, I would say 98% of the kids that came in, into our building were little black boys and girls, mm -hmm. right? When they picked you to say, we want you here in this location, we want you, we have this idea to collaborate Boys and Girls Club, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Phoenix House. What made you say yes? Like, did you feel like that was different? And then when you found out where it was going to be, like, how did, like, what was the impact just to you continuing on? Yeah. First, I think that, you know, the idea when I first was proposed it was, was a great idea. Like, I felt like I was already helping to do great work with the Boys and Girls Club already. So just the idea of like a combined effort with two other nationally known organizations made sense to me. And I thought, why not be a part of something that offers a triage of services to families that need them? So like, I definitely felt like this was something different and definitely that something that I wanted to be a part of. Then when I actually got there and was on the ground with you guys helping to like build this structure of what this this thing looked like that nobody had ever seen before, like I think I wanted it even more. And I was willing to do, you know, whatever to get that thing off of the ground, just like you guys were from like zero students enrolled in the program to like when we had like 80 and 90 people signed up. I mean, you remember Jessica, I was out there riding <laughs> on sidewalks with chalk. Come sign up for this awesome program. We were going into people's homes, you know, me and talking about it. Like, yeah, trying to get families involved. So like I just felt so passionate about like getting the program off of the ground and like wanting to help in that community and just like really getting to know those people and people getting to know those people and their families and just like being a help. So I definitely wanted it and I definitely I didn't feel any different in the sense of like nervousness or reluctance you know when I got there like I feel like me actually getting there made me want to do it that much more. How do you think those kids felt having something like that there? Like seeing you you were you were kind of their their touchstone you and Tierra more than yeah. anybody else were their touchstone in regards to anything happening in their lives you two were the people that they would go to 
And I'm sure just seeing you and Tier, Tier being another black man, like in these roles, in these positions was already planting seeds in things that they had ne not necessarily seen before. But were you getting, like, what were the kids telling you? Were they saying anything to that with you? Even just like under their breath, like, oh, it's kind of nice. Or, or did you get that sense of them feeling that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I felt like the kids really wanted us there. Like, I felt like they definitely felt like, you know, even if they weren't able to articulate it like we can, like there was a value to the service and the program that we had there, um, even beyond the program, us just being there as people that care about them and want to see them and want to be excited about them and want to be able to talk to them about things. And I think after a while, maybe not initially, but after a while, like a lot of the kids, I felt warmed up to us, um, warmed up to me, warmed up to you, and did confide things in us. And you get an opportunity to really like dig into like the lives of these kids and understand like what are some of their frustrations, what are some of their troubles that they deal with beyond them that are like family related. And so things like being angry about things that you can't explain, but like knowing those things are rooted in things like, you know, not having a father around or not being able to read like the rest of your class can and so you're you're afraid to speak up when the teachers ask you questions or just not really knowing like what your life is going to look like after you graduate and how you're going to get to college because you have all of these dreams but you you know your family can't really afford it i mean so these are a lot of the things that some of the kids once they finally did open up to me like had legitimate concerns about and worried through um and i worried through those things with those kids when they shared them with me and so you know, I definitely feel like just for the kids, if they weren't able to say it, like they showed us that they enjoyed having us be there by coming every day. I mean, even if it was just five minutes to drop in and then leave, like you guys are here, you're a consistent force and presence that I know I can come pop in for. So I think, you know, we were a value to those kids. And even though they might not have specifically said it, like they showed us. Oh, yeah. I remember our summer program, we had... I think around 100 kids for the summertime. And I remember one of the little girls asking me, why don't I have kids? Miss Jessica, how come you don't have any kids? And I look around and go, what are you talking about? I have 100 oh, kids. Yeah. What are you talking about? I, have, I can't handle it anymore. We are y'all all here. What do I mean? What do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, you can tire me out. When I go home, I can't handle any more kids. You guys, you, you take it from me. <laughs> Right. That's right. That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, yes, they were, oh my gosh, these kids. So with, you know, I know we, we're kind of like straddling, right? Cause I really, you're, to me, your story is important and it just bleeds into all these other things that are happening. And I think of these kids and I, like I said, I wish, I wish that I was still in touch with any of them, but they were little, so they didn't have social media and I don't know, Instagram was like barely kind of coming into play. It was really mostly like Twitter and Facebook at the time. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, and first of all, are, are you, have you been in touch or are you still in touch with any of the families from that, from that time? Only a small amount. And every time I think about that too, Dusk, I feel sad. Um, but a few of them that I, I am in touch with, or I at least keep tabs on through some of the people that I still know um, that are connected to them. Because this is, you know, I feel like during that time, and maybe I just have blocked it out. So please keep me honest, right? Mm -hmm. I felt like we weren't, I'm sure things were going on, but 
cell phone cameras were not the norm back then, right? Um, they were just starting to kind of get popular. Not everybody had them. Like, I feel like everybody has them now. I'm sure all of this, I'm positive all this stuff still was happening then, but it wasn't being captured. That's really the difference. It's not like this is a new thing. It's just now these are things that are being captured. But I don't remember us having to address anything like this while we were at, while we, you know, while we were at PYA. Did kids ever come to you to talk to you about that? Like, did, or just in general, did you, were they ever concerned about how people are viewing them from their skin? You know, th they wouldn't say it as elegant as that, Jessica, but I think kids would talk to me about like the frequency of police being in the Roseland area at that time. Um, but I don't even think that the kids had the lens to be able to talk to me about like how that might have looked in terms of fairness um, at that particular time. But I did, to answer the question, like have a few students that would talk to me about, you know, oh, Mr. Jackson, you know, the, the police here all the time, like they're always over here in situations like that. Um, and it's just funny that like now that we're talking about it, like me putting that together and thinking about like, you know, was there more to those conversations that I could have had with those kids about what was going on in that community that I just didn't have because I didn't even have the like the awareness or the, you know, unfortunately, maybe even the interest to further those conversations with those students beyond that. But like beyond that, I don't think there was a lot that, you know, we saw that was happening related to like what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I know. And it makes me think of those kids, right? It makes mm -hmm. me think of those kids like I feel like we tried so much to instill in them that they were awesome and that they didn't have to be like everybody else, that, they, that there were so many paths for them to go, that it was okay for them to be themselves. And then like all these things are happening and they're not kids anymore. Right. The kids that we work with aren't kids anymore. And I yeah. literally, I just think back, like, do they still believe in themselves as much as we believe, believed and continue to believe in them? Or have their hearts hardened because of everything that has gone on. I think you make a good point, Jessica, and I think that point that you're making about us, you know, really believing in the kids and explaining to kids, because I think we really believe it, that you can be whoever you want. You don't have to be who the world tells you to be. You don't have to be what you think other people want you to be or what's cool to be. You know, I think when I think about statements like that, that I really feel like I mean and that I've told kids and I've told families. And then I think about the things that are happening to people, you know, it feels like it's almost like a contradiction. You know yeah. what I'm saying, Jessica? It's like yeah. we're preaching to people that you don't have to be, you know, this image of who you want to be or who you think people want you to be. You can be all of these things that you do really want to be, but then you're seeing that people are being, you know, unnecessarily stopped, Jessica. They're being unnecessarily restrained. They're being unnecessarily killed. And you, you have to wonder if these things that are happening aren't racially motivated because they continue to happen in the ways that look very much the same across all the instances. And in those same cases, if you were to flip them and put them with a different race, they don't happen the same way. And so it just makes you really think about what is the reality of telling somebody you really can be everything? Because if the fact is, 
you know, if you do all of those great things that we tell you you can do, if you follow all the rules, in a perfect world, yeah, you should be able to matriculate through life and not have any concerns. But my qualm right now, Jessica, my concern and my fear is that, like, people like us that do pride ourselves on being right, right, and doing all of the things that people say you should do and doing all the things that you want to do because you have this great moral compass to want to do those things anyway, still don't prevent you from being treated a certain way because of your skin color. And that that's what makes me sad, Jessica. And that's what makes me feel like, you know, have we been lying to these kids all of this time? Like, can you really be everything that you want to be? And part of me, Jessica, doesn't want to be that pessimistic, right? You never want to think that the hope that you have for anybody or the hope that you have for the world is false. Nobody wants to live in that type of world. But I feel like you're reminded of it being that type of world when you see things like what we're seeing now take place and the harsh reality slaps you in the face and you're reminded of the fact that, you know, my life as a black man, your life as a Latina woman looks different than the life of our white counterparts sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just reflected in in the entire power structure of our country, right? You look at the president, you look at which I just call him the Cheeto in charge. That's just, it's hard for me to call him the president. Uh, I call him the Cheeto in Cheeto charge. Cheeto in charge. Yeah. <laughs> and then, babe, you look at, you know, the House of Representatives, you look at the Senate, you look at who makes up the judicial system, you like all of these things. Like there's like almost this is whole system that I was reading this whole thing. And I was told you yesterday, I was watching 13th mm-hmm. and it was like things that, you know, right. Like things I've learned in school, things that I've read, things that of all of these different situations. But when you put it compact together, like of all these things that have happened, because you hear it, you hear this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. And then you, compact it into a two hour documentary, like where it really condenses like all of the things that have happened and probably not even all the things that have happened, but many of the things that have happened. I was bawling my freaking eyes out because even though I knew so many of these things, it hit me so differently. And it, everything that's happened, like I told you, like my first experience viewing it from my eyes right? From the outside was Rodney King, but now it's like all of these other things have happened, right? You had Eric Garn, you had Tamir Rice, you've had, you know, um, Sandra Bland, you've had like all of these things that have happened that you're just like, I don't understand. Like, how are these, like you said, they keep happening. And then I get mad, right? Because I'm thinking of that the shooter, the El Paso shooter who drove from Dallas to El Paso straight said he was there targeting Mexicans. And where is he? He's in jail. Where is George Floyd? Where is Sandra Bland? Where is Tamir Wright? Like all of them are not here. How can you tell me that it's not like this is a just system? When it's just... I'm sorry, I'm probably getting red. I'm not sorry. No, I'm not sorry for feeling this way because we have the right to feel this way because this is so fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Oh my gosh, why all of a sudden I cannot remember his name in Florida, the, guy, the little boy that George Zimmerman killed so with his stand his, you know, stand his ground, whatever, mm-hmm. bullshit. Um, all of a sudden my mind has gone blank. You listen to it, right? You, you listen to the 911 call, which was on 13th last, it's on 13th. 
where 911 is telling him, don't get out of the car. Don't follow. Are you following him? Yes, I'm following him. We don't need you to follow him. Please stop following him. Please stop following him. Then you hear a 911 call saying like something's happening. Then you hear the gunshot and you're just like, how can you still claim stand your ground when they specifically told you not to follow him and not to like, where was his opportunity to stand his ground? All he was doing was walking. Yeah. That old situation with this Trayvon Martin is just... Sorry, yes, Trayvon Martin. I'm sorry, I just blanked on the name. Yeah, and it just kind of makes you think about like the privilege of like these individuals to engage in like this vigilante behavior and not be held to the same standards of accountability that like any other race would be if they chose to engage in a similar way of handling a situation, even after it's been clearly communicated to that person that you shouldn't be following them, you shouldn't engage, wait for the authorities. I mean, you still have this person that takes like this rogue justice into their own hands and essentially for every intent and every purpose, you know, gets away with it, you know, and it just, I think what we're seeing also now, Jessica, is just like this snowball effect of things that communities, not just black com the Black community, communities have continued to see play out over time with the help of, you know, cameras and social media, you know, only amplifying the message, you know, and it's just like you continue to see these types of things happen and you continue to see that no accountability happens and then you have it just to the point now where it just explodes over and you have the whole world just we're talking about the world is speaking out against all of the injustices that have been happening over probably decades you know as far back to the rodney king riots that we're talking about earlier like you just have a people and i'm not saying just black people in general just a people if we're talking about a movement of people that are that are tired of seeing the same things happen by the same groups of people and nobody's being held accountable. Like you get the whole, you know, slap on the hand type of situation and they get to, you know, get probation or get, you know, their badge taken or they get fired. Like, but you have these other bodies that keep stacking up of dead people that have been wrongfully killed for no reason, right? And it just gets to be so tiresome, Jessica. And I know, you know, that I share your frustration in knowing that you know, stuff like this shouldn't be happening. And then we link it back to like our promises that we've been making to kids all this time, Jessica, about like, you can be who you want to be. And then like, when we think back to a Trayvon Martin or to a Botham Jean or even to a George Floyd, like is the reality that we've been communicating to kids like the accurate reality? Like, can people really be who they want to be and be accepted without just, 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 you know, judgment, without, you know, undue process, without all of these things that we feel like are happening to people, Jessica, that we're, and these aren't things that we're just fictitiously saying they're happening. Like, yeah. we see these things. We saw almost 10 minutes worth of a man's life being stolen from him, Jessica. Calling out for his mom who had died, like, and nobody stops like the the other police were complicit in that and that's like i you know you hear that oh not all and look i have friends who are police officers i've worked for the world police in fire games like i get that not all cops are the are are bad cops but the system is not made for people of color particularly black men 
right? Particularly black people. So you're so right. Like we've been telling these kids, like you can do anything. We believe in you. We believe in you. We, like you said, we believe that, right? We believe that I have seen like, I think honestly, one of the first kids I think about is Benny. Benny is this little kid when he first came in, remember how angry he was? He was so angry and he just had so, and he was like nine years, nine, 10 years old. And he already just had so much anger at the world and so much resentment. And then we, you know, to, to us eventually featuring him in a video where he's saying, well, I know I can be anything I want to be. I want to be a basketball player, but if I can't be a basketball player, I want to be a teacher. Everything is open for me. And I still cry. Like, I still have that video. If you don't have it, I will send it to you. I mean, I need <laughs> but, and he, we didn't tell him to say that. Mm-hmm. But it was like the work that we all did to really say that how much we believed in these kids and that there was possibility to see that reflect in his words and now know, like not knowing if he still believes that, how many other kids have been told that? Like, we just know the kids we work with. How many other kids beyond the kids that we have worked with have have been told you can do anything you want. You can be anything you want to be. And then they see this and they're like, I just want to live. Right. Yeah, and I think that statement for some people, just because the way it's resonating now, is like, maybe I can be anything I want to be, but I can't be this person of color. I can be anything but that. And I think that's, you know, for me and maybe a lot of other people, like, that's where, like, this frustration continues to be, like, a source of, like, unending, like, anger. Because, you're, you know, we don't choose to be the color of our skin, like, right? We're born the way we are. We're born who we are. And we're just trying to, like everybody else, I believe, Jessica's just trying to live our life to the best of our ability and, like, make it out. But, like, there are so many things, and this being one of them, that happen that we can't control. And I feel like now you're seeing people say no. Like, enough is enough. Like, even the young people are standing up to their parents and saying, you know, I don't agree with the ideology that you have about, like, what people think and what they do and, you know, who they are, you know, just because you say it. Like, here are facts. Like, here are videos. I have footage of this taking place that go against what you're saying these people do. And, like, what are you going to say to it? And I just think, like, our world needs to be more open to having conversations like this, Jessica, where we talk openly about each other's experiences without fear of like feeling like you can't say certain things because that's the only way we'll get past this as a country, as people, is if we lean in with our hearts versus our heads. And I think we continue to lean in with our heads and trying to say we want to understand people's perspective but the second we bring up the conversation well what about this and like what about my life and what about this killing of these people you know which isn't any type of like understanding language at all like this is a that's a language of defense you know anybody that argues and rebuts knows that like if you go into a conversation with the intent to understand you ask more questions about like what that person's experiences are so that you can truly understand versus trying to think through facts and things like that for you to refute what they're saying. And I feel like you probably have seen this too. Like there are so many people that have commentated and made snide remarks and lewd posts about their ideas about what the 
situation with George Floyd was or like what black people do and don't do in their communities. And it just is so disheartening because I just feel like if those people really took the time just like you and I have with getting to know individuals on a personal level and like really seeing them for they, who they are, like a Benny, like you would know that these people just like you have the ability to do so much more than what you think they're capable of. And that's what I, that's what I feel angry about when I think about police looking at me, even with my experiences. And because like, you feel like I fit a profile because it's 11 o'clock at night and I have a red vehicle that's sporty and I'm black, you know, that I should be stopped because something might be wrong and I need to catch you in the act. You know, it's just tiring, right? It's tiring. It feels old. We're in 2020, Jessica, you know, slavery was over 400 years ago. We shouldn't even be having these conversations about things regarding racism. And even if we are having the conversations, we as a people should be more willing to be understanding of each other's experiences. And let me even take it one layer deeper, Jessica, like I know a lot of us profess to be Christian people and like yeah. Christian principles and practices revolve around this idea of loving your neighbor, right? And loving each other. And I've seen so many posts and so many comments that are completely in the opposite direction of what it looks like to love somebody. I just see division and I just see misunderstanding and an unwillingness to lean in with an ear of love or even hope from all angles. And it just, you know, it makes you wonder, Jessica, like, when will be the end of this? Like, is there an end to this? I mean, obviously we all hope there is. I think we were talking earlier before before we actually officially started was, it's one thing, like, in order to understand, you need to start with understanding yourself, right? Understanding your own privilege. And I've had, like, my, I feel like I continue to go through that. I feel like I understood that a while. I can't tell you, like, the pinpoint of when I understood that, but I feel like it continues to evolve, right? I'm continuing to get a deeper understanding. But I've had family members who are like, I didn't realize what my privilege was. I, and I feel like that as a non-black person, the first thing you have to do, right, is like internalize. If I, if I was a black person and I did this, would this, would the outcome have been the same? If I, the fact that we have to explain to another, a, a former coworker a long time ago that she didn't have to, she doesn't have to explain to her son how to not only interact with the cops, but to not get killed that she doesn't have to worry about those things. Like just try to start understanding. And I think like you were saying, people just automatically want to get defensive instead of saying, you know what, I was wrong. Because there's nothing wrong with saying you were wrong and saying, okay, you know what, I didn't, I wasn't at a place where I could understand then, but I can understand now and I want to do better. And it, I think that's where a lot of people like just start there. It's okay if you didn't understand then. You understand now. Yeah. I think I do see a lot of just that, just like there's this unwillingness to even want to A, acknowledge that you were wrong, and B, like we're seeing with this whole Black Lives Matter movement, like there's nothing wrong with saying Black Life Matters, Jessica. There's nothing wrong with yes. saying White Life Matters. There's nothing wrong with saying a Latino Life Matters. 
you know, if a Latino life or Latino lives were the issue that we were having right now, like there's nothing wrong with naming that at all. It's not in the least saying that other lives don't matter. And I've seen so many analogies about this that gets ridiculous. Like if you, you know, wanted to save a specific rainforest and you say, let's save the Yucca rainforest, like that doesn't mean you don't care about the other rainforests out there. Like there's just this one issue that you've identified with this rainforest and you want to focus on it. It just is frustrating to me just to see people make that statement and know they have in their life their professional, their professional life and personal life, you know, experiences that are comparable to what we're saying and they can understand it. For example, like if you're a business owner and you have budgetary, you know, responsibility, like every year you have to prioritize and determine like what's going to be your focus. You might have 50 things you want to focus on and maybe you have to select 10. And just because you select 10, that doesn't mean the other 40 aren't important. You're just narrowing down your focus to hone in on 10 because these are the 10 that are really important to you. Yeah. It's the same freaking way, Jessica, for, for what we're talking about. Nobody's saying that everybody else's life doesn't matter. We're saying the black community feels like right now, blacks are disproportionately being killed and targeted by police officers. I agree white lives matter. I agree Latino lives matter. Asian lives matter. They all do matter, but right now, Blacks feel like there is a problem with police officers killing Blacks. And that's why we're saying Black Lives Matter, because we need and we want people to understand that this is an issue, first of all, that this is an issue, and that we want people to stand up and say something and do something about it. What do you think it was about George Floyd in particular? Because I know like what happened with Botham Jean in particular was, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, by the way, if you feel like you need to cuss, Stephen, feel free. Like, we're good here. <laughs> <laughs> Your viewers, they don't mind. <laughs> they don't mind. They don't mind. But, you know, the fact that this white Dallas police officer, like, I'm sorry, I've lived in, I think you have too, but I've lived in apartments like that are like that, right? I know where my, and I have before been so tired I got off the wrong one and then I look oh this is not mine not once have I ever like put my key into the wrong apartment because your apartment number is right there and there's been times where I'm like wait oh wait this is not my oh oh this is wrong <laughs> because my little welcome mat wasn't out there right you and the fact that you know Botham Jean was in his own home, sitting there having ice cream, and he gets shot and killed, and again in his own home, and you know not even—I know people are trying to bring up George George Floyd's past. That was his past, mm -hmm. right? Just like you don't want to be judged for your past. And there had been several instances in in the recent present that there was nothing happening. It was his past you pay if you have paid and you have decided you want to continue to go on and improve your life you should be able to do that and the fact that he and so many others have died what do you think it was about this particular one I know there's been like one after the other after the other like three things truly in succession right that have happened during this pandemic Here's my opinion, and then I want to obviously get your opinion. My opinion is everything that happened with the pandemic, I feel in it's divine in some way because it 
forced us to stop, slow down. And these things that happened, I obviously don't condone them in any way, but I feel like if it was in any other time, we wouldn't be coming together in this way. But because we're in this global pandemic and everybody has had to stop, that has given us this unity for the people who are truly against this or people who didn't really understand it has given them this time to be able to say, oh shit, like this isn't right and something needs to be done. And having that time to do it under this pandemic, I feel like this is the only time maybe it would have happened. Yeah. I do feel like there's some kind of like divine intervention situation that's happening here. Like we all have been kind of forced to be like still to like, for whatever reason, like really reflect on things that are happening all in our personal lives and, you know, professional lives as well. But then like you do, like you mentioned, combine that with the fact that there were a few events in succession that happened leading up to this you know, that might not have been involving like somebody being killed like this outrightly, but like the same theme of what's happening with specifically, you know, black people being targeted for whatever reason, you know, it's, it's the same. And so like specifically with George Floyd, and I think I mentioned this earlier, Jessica, I just feel like that was the point, that was the tipping point. Like there was nowhere else for this, this feeling to go combined with everything else that we're going through the pandemic, the succession, the succession with the other instances that happened. And then this, and I think this was just like dropping a ball, a huge bowling ball, you know, on whatever was about to tip over, like it couldn't take it. And I just think, you know, the video itself, Jessica, not only with him crying out, but the length of time that it took and just the amount of people that were restraining him. I just think within that video itself, there was just so much that was happening to make it such a tragic event to where like the world can't help but to admit, like this is a complete wrong. And I think what's interesting about this case too, Jessica, is like you even, it's not just like the black community that's saying this is wrong. Like you have every nationality that's aligning to say this is wrong. Even other police officers are saying, we don't teach this. Like, this is not what we train cops to do. Like, we actually tell them to do the opposite. I was reading one cop's post earlier that was saying, you know, in any trainings that he's led, and I think the gentleman was on the force for like 19 years, he said they actually tell them to do the, the exact opposite thing, like not put their knee on individuals' neck when they're trying to restrain them. And so I just think the combination of all of those things that were happening that we've just talked about, like, the George Floyd thing was just the, the tipping point. Like nothing else could be bottled up into that bottle anymore. That bottle was about to explode as it was. And you just had the George Floyd situation. And I just think it's so tragic, Jessica, that we had to watch that. And what I talked to my mom about when I actually was ready to talk about it was like, I think it went, there was two days, maybe even three days, Jessica, that it went by after the video had surfaced where I didn't even watch it. I, I couldn't like watch it. Like I had just been leaning on what I had read from other people and hearing what they had said about it. And then I was like, no, I can't watch this video. I don't want to watch it. And then finally I was just like, you know what? Like I have to watch it. Like I have to see this ugliness to know how I want to respond to it and to know like how I don't want this to be what happens in the future. And so I did watch it. And then from there, like I just have had 
days of emotional like feelings since then, Jessica, and just thinking about like why. And I think that answer, that question is just what continues to pop up. Why? Yeah. And I don't know, Jessica, I just feel like even even if let's let's just entertain this idea that George Floyd did do something wrong. Even if he had done something wrong, he was clearly restrained and detained Absolutely. and complicit for minutes. And it just baffles me, Jessica, why four police officers out of all four of those people, Jessica, that nobody had the sense enough to say, hey, this man is not a threat right now. Yeah, it just makes you speechless because you don't understand it. Like I was telling you before, you know, before we we sat down today and everything that I just, it's so hard. I think that seeing it made it so hard for people to wrap their head around, right? Like you're literally, I, I couldn't watch the whole thing. I had to stop because I, I couldn't take it. And I will say for some, um, it was, and I tend to do that for a lot of things. Like there's certain movies that I know I probably should watch but I'm like, I can't take it, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, I can't, it, I already, like, I already know that I'm, that it's going to hurt. But those are the things that we should do. Yeah. Like, when we know it's going to hurt, that that's for a reason, right? It's for a reason. There's certain, like, I haven't watched Selma. I've read about Selma. I haven't watched the movie. I will be watching it. But it's because I knew, like, my heart can't take that stuff. It, like, just I already feel it like in the pit of my stomach like the nausea like that I'm gonna feel watching that the tears that I already know are gonna be coming from watching that movie I had to force myself to watch 13th yesterday because it's not like I don't ever want to watch these things it's just I get so emotional watching them I know how much it's gonna hurt for me and then I start thinking of all of my friends. I start thinking of you. I start thinking of the kids at PYA. I start thinking of my friends in Dallas. I start thinking of my friends here. And I'm thinking like, I will never know what that is like. And then it hurt like, and then it's just like a compounding thing. And this isn't even, and it's not about me. It's like me wanting to be better for you and me want to be better for those kids and me want to be better for all my friends and the people I don't know. Yeah. And then it just makes me frustrated that why like did it take this for so many people to finally open their eyes? Yeah. You know what I think is is interesting, Jessica. I just think what we have right now is not it's it's a heart problem. People are not leaning into this issue with their heart. And I think that's what's so unfortunate. Like, we need more people to lean in and really want to understand this from someone else's perspective. And we have so many people, not you, Jessica, obviously, because you care. We need more people to actually care, to actually give a damn, to actually want to empathize and sympathize with somebody else's point of view, even if you don't have that lens. And right now, we just, we're not completely there. I will say, Jessica, that I feel hopeful because I don't think in our time, Jessica, we've ever seen the world unite behind an issue like this on this type of scale. And I just think that's hope in itself 
But I think the way that we truly will end and combat this fully, Jessica, is if more people decided, I'm going to lean into trying to understand this with my heart rather than my head. And the heart, unfortunately, Jessica, is a, is a tough thing to, to tackle and to change. And I don't think Jessica will actually get to change everybody. I think the unfortunate thing is some people just won't be willing to unlearn things and to think differently. And you know what? That's okay. But I think we're, what I feel like we're seeing now is that there are more people that are willing to say, nope, that's BS. You know, I don't agree with that. That shouldn't happen. You know, it's not fair for somebody to, to call police on a man who's in the park watching birds. You know, that's not okay. And people now are calling out other people on their BS. That's good. I just think it's a fine time to do so. And I'm, I'm sad, just like you're sad that it took this, you know, this much blood to get to this realization. And I wish it didn't have to take that much sacrifice to get to this. But I think of now, like, what we just need to do is continue to move the needle forward by having conversations like this and having action plans for follow-up beyond our conversations and actually being about the change that we say we want to see. And that's my reason, Jessica, for why I felt like I had to watch that video. I had to watch it because I had to know once I feel energized and motivated to do something, this is the reason why I wanted to do something. Because I remember that man who died whose life was stolen in front of us. You know, I remember that. And I'm going to make that continually my why for why I won't be silent about stuff like this anymore. And I'll continue to comment on people's threads from people that I know, Jessica, about like why I feel like things don't make sense or why I feel like it's insensitive or why I feel like their eyes are closed. You know, I feel like before this point, Jessica, I, I might have shied away from conversations like this for fear of, you know, how it might hurt me personally or professionally or, you know, what people might think. They may unfriend me or something like that. But now is not the time for silence anymore. And I, to me, it's really important that we don't depend on, like, I'm not depending on my Black friends to teach me, right? It's not there. It's not your job to teach me. It's our job. It's my job if I want to know to have a conversation, it's my job to listen. It's my job to figure out and have the conversation and be open. But we shouldn't be expected to have like, you're not the spokesperson for all black people. I know you want to be Stephen, but sorry, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody has their own experience, right? So, you know, what we've been talking about is your experience and your feelings. And that is probably so very similar and so very different from some, from other people. But if you're not sure you should ask the question, you need to ask it. 100% agree. And it, it, as uncomfortable as it might feel and seem, you know, it's the right thing to do. Like, we'll never get past the uncomfort if we're complicit and if we don't try. And I think, you know, for a long time, people were comfortable and turning a blind eye because it wasn't in their neighborhood. It didn't affect them directly. It wasn't their family. You know, and I think what we're seeing now just because that people, you know, they want to be vocal about the rioting. They want to be vocal about the looting. And now they want to say something. And, and I don't, you know, condone rioting or looting just or violence. But like, what I do think is we could have prevented that if we had more conversations like this. And so what I would encourage anybody that might be viewing this at some point, you know, 
keep in mind the lesson that we've learned from this situation. Like we as a people are witnessing the result of inaction and that inaction being as far back to even like me and Jessica have talked about the Rodney King stuff. Like this has not been like one, this is not about George Floyd. This is the culmination of multiple things that have taken place over years that have been silenced or that have not been looked at or that have not been talked about. And then even beyond that, look at, I mean, the civil rights movement and then how all of the leaders within what, two year span gone? Mm -hmm. They just took one after another, one after another, one after another out. And now it's like, we all have to lead, right? We all have to be able to step up and lead and say, this is not right. I'm so appreciative of your platform, Jessica, and I hope you continue to like lift up the other voices for, you know, people that you encounter and products that you encounter, because I think that's so important. And that's the only way to bring that type of like knowledge to the people. But like you said, don't rely on other people to do it for you. And I'm so glad you're doing that for yourself. I mean, I appreciate you coming on, Stephen, because I know I just I was like, I just threw it out there like, hey, I have this platform. <laughs> if you ever want to come on, you're like, yes, I think that's a great idea. And I was like, all right, yay, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, you know, it's just I am so gra- grateful to have the people in my life that I do. And like I said, I know that we've always just been like, hey, how's it going? Because we didn't see each other every day. We've moved. Literally, we're across the country from each other these days. But I want to make sure that we continue to have these conversations and that we don't let something like this like be the catalyst of us having to talk like this because I was so happy to see your face. <laughs> Absolutely, Jessica. And I commit and agree with what you said, you know, to not letting this be the only time that we talk and, you know, keeping in contact is very important and we should definitely make sure that we continue to do that. Steven, like I said, thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate you sharing your heart. I know that we could probably be on here for hours and hours and hours. We love to talk, Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) Me? I think both of us, both of us love you. But, you know, this is is only the beginning, and these conversations need to continue to happen. Actually, before I let you go, I want to ask you one other question. Sure. How, what do you think of the defund the police movement? I know to certain things, it means like to different people, it means different things almost, right? From the people I've talked to, it's really about not necessarily, like Minnesota has decided they are basically scrapping Mm -hmm. and coming up with a new version. And I think the reason that people are saying that are one of two things, that so many police officers with incidents don't get fired because of the union. Or they'll get fired, but then they'll get rehired because of the union. If they scrap the police department altogether, the union is no longer there. They have certain things. I know some people want, like, where it's it's not necessarily scrapping it altogether, but it's moving funds. Like, why is our police so militarized? A lot of that has to do with what happened in Bill Clinton's presidency, right, in regards to ramping up police efforts, and he has since apologized, saying, like, this did not, this bill did not have the intended consequences, these weren't the intended consequences of this, like, crime reform bill, where our police has now become a militarized unit, basically. 
So some of it's calling for like not scrapping the police, but defunding it where that money is going to come back to community, back to education, back to um, human and health services, mental health services, because right now, like police have to deal with all of that. Where do you, there's a big spectrum in regards to what defund the police means. How, where do you feel like your own opinion or how do you stand on that? Um, I actually love that you brought this up, Jessica. I think that, you know, at the present moment, I'm not, I feel like I'm probably a little bit like you. Like, I don't fully believe that completely scrapping the police is the best option because I don't think there's enough data or, you know, information to support like what that would look like. And if that's the best course of action, I am in favor at this particular moment of some type of defunding, meaning like monies are allocated in a different way. Um, with less favor towards the police budget, because it just, it makes me wonder, Jessica, when you look at the, the the city budget for like some of the large cities across the country and like how, you know, almost a third, if not more of the city's budget goes toward the police, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, are cities really set up to empower citizens and give them the resources they need, or are they just to police them? And I wonder, you know, if we were to, like you had suggested, like reserve those funds in a different way and did more support to the programs that could use funding, i.e. like education, like social services, like would we have some of the problems that we have in those communities if they were funded better? Subsequently, meaning you wouldn't need the police as much. And so like, I think at the present moment, just without like the research and data to say that like completely scrapping police is the best option. I think I am and would like to see a world where like allocations are looked at a little bit differently with regard to city budgets and state budgets and even a national budget with regard to the police. I just feel like if you leave a system unchecked without the proper checks or balances, it's bound to go awry. And I think what we're seeing is a system where the checks and balances are not being accountable or even accounted for in the ways that we had originally intended them to. And so I would love to see it, Jessica. I would love to see not the complete scrap at this time, but I would love to see if the cities, the states, and even the nation would seriously look at like reallocating money in a way that supports programming for individuals within those specific buckets to be supported by the resources that they really need versus the policing. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, like you said, a third of so many large cities budget goes to policing and then all of these other things are being scrapped. Like, how does it give anybody an opportunity to truly thrive if we're living in a police state? Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, too, Jessica, how, you know, I've seen and I know it's still like an early thought and an early discussion point. But I've already seen people commenting about like, what is it going to look like if we take the the budget from police departments and stuff like that? Well, my question back to those people, Jessica, is like, we continuously take money from the education consistently, you know, and it's it's almost like it's a thing now. And you know, I wonder if those same people would have such an outcry or have had an outcry like that with regard to the cuts in funding for schools. You know, it just makes me laugh almost when you think about like that in comparison to what people would say about defunding the police. But that will be my response to people like that, Jessica, is like, where was this same vigor when some of the programs designed to keep people in specific, you know, ways supported 
we're defunded. I mean, you work at a school. You're a director of operations for a, a pretty well-known charter school. How has this like affected? Obviously, your school year was kind of cut short in regards with with COVID and everything. But like you said, like right now, everything like anytime there's a budget cut, education is always getting hit. How do you proceed beyond when education is always getting hit? Because I know that charter schools do get some like do get funding. How do you how do you kind of keep absorbing that those types of hits to and especially now they want class sizes to be smaller. How the hell do you do that? Yeah. I mean unfortunately Jessica, you you start to chip away at the things that like help to enhance the student's experience. And those things could be like support you know, measures for, you know, teachers in classrooms that could be, you know, extracurricular activities for kids that really help them get like a holistic experience that could be field trips that could be like speakers coming in to help augment the lessons that they're, they're being taught, you know, and then it even, it even can boil down into like staffing, unfortunately, Jessica, like if you just don't have the funds that you need, then like all of those auxiliary support staff that you might have, all the operational staff like me that are, in my opinion, very much necessary, you know, become questions of legitimacy when you have to worry about the funding. Like you're looking at like, how can you cut corners? Unfortunately, who can absorb this role? You know, is an assistant principal also able to do this? You know, as a teacher also able to do this? And I think that only further compounds a problem that we're already having that teachers already experience, and that's increased workload high demand, no equal pay, you know, and it just continues to make the problem that we see with the education system be even larger when you have to worry about the funding. And so I think like with stuff like this and re rethinking how we distribute funds, you know, maybe it's a good thing in the sense that, you know, if we support the, the systems that we have in place that are supposed to support kids, supposed to support families, then maybe we won't have to worry about the problems that we've been seeing that we need police for currently. And maybe it's not an immediate thing that we see tomorrow, Jessica. I think sometimes we have to think about things with a forethought and, yeah. and, and think that I'm planting a seed today that I'll reap 10, 15 years from now. And I think we're in a microwave generation right now, Jessica, where we want to see everything tomorrow. Absolutely. We did it today. Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to definitely have to talk again because <laughs> There's so much, like I said, I knew it. I knew I was to say one thing and we could just keep going and going. But Stephen, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. I appreciate like you sitting, you know, you sitting down with me. These are never easy conversations to have. I didn't feel like they were uneasy conversations because we're friends. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like you trust, I trust you, you trust me that it wasn't going to be some crazy thing <laughs> coming on because you didn't know what I would, you didn't know I didn't. what I was going to ask you. <laughs> you didn't prep me at all, guys, at all. No Q&A, I mean, no questions. <laughs> so, but just, I'm so thankful for you, your spirit, and you being an ally and just be willing to, like, hear it. You know, I think, you know, even when we were in the same city, Jessica, I've, I've always felt like I could talk to you about stuff, and I think this – Thing that we are doing now further supports who you are and I hope you don't lose that I mean wait till I get real big I'm gonna be no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for that don't forget the little people like me <laughs> never just kidding <laughs> no I mean 
you know, that, that's what this whole, the whole idea, the whole of the concept of this podcast was for. And guess what, Stephen, you're my first guy too. I've been wanting to get more guys oh. on the podcast. So Ooh. yeah, you're my first guy too. And you're my, you're a milestone. You are my 20th episode. Hey, just Thank all around. Coming, it, it was written in the stars. For <laughs> <us>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. I will Thank make you, sure Jessica. to Thank include. You viewers. Yes, I'll make sure to include some resources that you are able to go to in regards to places that you can donate to, um, websites you can learn more, movies that you can learn more, books, all of that stuff. Those will be in the show notes. So, till next time, mi gente. Saludos. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Myth Podcast. We wanted to make sure we provided some resources for you to be able to donate or learn more information on Black Lives Matter. So make sure to check out the show notes. Also, please make sure to visit your local Black-owned businesses and support. Often, a quick Google search will give you plenty of places to choose from. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? then please reach out to me via my social media channels. You can reach me at, on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme, on Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Chisme Podcast. I want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more of The Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.